WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQ&A. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And uh, joining this, us this week uh, is uh, somebody who's doing a lot over at Vault Comics. You might know him from uh, some of the covers that he's designed. You might know him from the series The Plot. Uh, it is Tim Daniel. Tim, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, so I'll start with the, with the typical icebreaker, uh, get to know you question. Uh, what are some of the first comics that you remember reading when you, you know, first got into the medium? Good, clear memory on that one. Um, even though I'm getting older, it, I can still <laughs> recall that first time when I uh, was a good friend. You know, I think I was 12. I think he was 12. Uh, I locked to his house, nothing to do. And he had this big binder, this gigantic binder. Uh, and I opened it up and it was just filled with all these Marvel comics. Now I had memory of like my father coming home on a bus from San Francisco. I was living in the Bay area at the time mm -hmm. and, uh, growing up anyway, you know, he'd always bring me something from the newsstand uh, or the racks right there by the bus stops on the way home. So there was never anything specific. It was Spider-Man. But when I in that binder at that point, when I was 12 years old and there was the Submariner, and I turned, and there was the Fantastic Four, and I turned, and, and then there was, you know, the X-Men, and the, mm -hmm. that, that did it. <laughs> that was like an instant, <laughs> instant uh, you know, a drug addiction right there. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, this is, this is an audio uh, medium, of course, but we're talking on Zoom, so I'm just going to show this off anyway. I literally just got an Amazon package uh, not but a half hour ago. Uh, my brand new Days of Future Past Neck Gator. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's yeah. it. That was that was the you know that was I think it was right seriously right leading up to that. So it okay. was like I think he had like X Men. I'm gonna say like 110, 111, 112. You know and he had them all behind sort of like a, a mylar you know sheath, and I each one was just inc these incredible covers. You know, Cockrum and Austin and Byrne, and I was just floored. I was like, can I take this home and can I read it all? <laughs> I didn't know they were collector's things at that point. He was already collecting, and this was 1980-ish, right around there. Mm -hmm. So I had no clue that these things were worth gold, and he was like, no, you're not taking them home. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I started buying them every week. That, that did it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, that, that run is to me is, you know, that Claremont, you know, Cockrum, Claremont, Byrne, Austin, that run, uh, was to me defining not only my interest in comics, but mm, I, you know, it started me down the path of drawing, you know, consistently and seeking out opportunities to like share with friends, love of comics and reading and, and then collecting and then, and then so forth. So yeah, that, that run right there is seminal, really. Yeah. Interesting they were in binders. I, I, yeah, I don't was, see a lot of that. <laughs> no, you know, like this was, like, like I said, 1980 or so, you know, mm -hmm. and I think, but he had them all in these large, almost like photo album binders. So there was like a, mm -hmm. a mylar sheath in front of each one and they were protected. And mm -hmm. obviously they were all like, you know, Kirby and Buscema and, and a lot of the stuff, you know, now that would be a fortune. Yeah. Um, and there they all were. They were all first run. And so I didn't know what collecting was. But after that, I sure as heck did. So, <laughs> you know, 
so that's that started off and then it was daredevil you know then it was jumping over to daredevil and with miller i think Mm -hmm. miller started like 158 or so and i just dove right into that like i was hooked the minute he started writing daredevil i i couldn't stop and and then it bled you know it just bled it bled itself into like countless other titles really and Mm -hmm. yep totally yeah definitely a a hell of a hell of a time to uh to get into comics absolutely yeah, it felt like the, you know, it felt like the glory days, you know, and it felt like I, I just got to discover one incredible talent after the next. Mm-hmm. You know, as a kid, I didn't know. I just knew what I loved. I knew what I was looking at and, you know, it, just the artistry involved, you know. So I knew right away, this is something I want to do, you know. And then along comes, you know, say Bill Sienkiewicz on New Mutants, mm-hmm. you know, and having him come to the local shop for an afternoon and watching him sketch, that was a moment, you know, so that, that kind of thing just, it hooked me. It was lifelong. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to, you know, get into a bunch of stuff. We're going to talk about the plot. We're going to talk about, you know, horror in general, but uh, you know, we brought you on the show, uh, you know, partially to kind of get into the weeds on, on your work as, as a designer. Uh, because that is such a big part of what you do at Vault. Uh, you know, first of all, um, you know, how did you get involved with the Wassel family and and become you know one of the the, the big figures in this operation? Uh, well, uh, yeah, that started uh, 2015 or so, 16. Um, I'd known Adrian through local signings, so I was doing a book at 215 Inc. called Enormous. Adrian was doing Gifted uh, and Deadeye. Uh, which were original graphic novels. And so I had a couple of signings here at the local store, at like an entertainment store called Hastings. They were a chain. Um, they no longer exist. But uh, I had those signings. And then, you know, I was being asked to to drop Adrian uh, onto the uh, posters that I was designing for the signings. Mm-hmm. And so he showed up and we got to know each other. And he's an exceedingly nice guy. And, um, you know, we got along and we exchanged books and uh, signed each other's books and so forth. And so here we were in Missoula and I, I thought I was kind of alone other than mm-hmm. say uh, Tony Grigori, who's a, a local, also local Missoulian who's done a number of different books at a number of different publishers. I thought I was virtually alone here and um, here was Adrian. So skip ahead a couple of years to 2016, 2015. He uh, called me up one day and said, you know, we're starting a company um, and we want you to just take a look at what we're doing, see what you think. And so I sat down with him, met him at my day job and uh, he came over for a a quick meeting and he showed me what he was doing. And vault was the name of the company Mm -hmm. uh, on this cover for, for uh, failsafe was the first book I saw. And I literally just shoved the phone across the table to him and I said, listen, you, you don't need me. You don't need my advice. Everything you guys are doing, uh, this is impressive stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would buy this uh, without a question. Um, and so at the end of that meeting, I said, you know, I got three or four books right now that I'm working on developing. Uh, will you take a look at them for Vault? Because I think they'd be a good fit. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> basically that wrapped up with, me offering my services in exchange for the opportunity to explore publishing there uh, as a writer and so it was sort of a a really nice fit to combine the writing aspect with the design aspect 
and kind of having a, a home. So that more or less became official within a couple of weeks. And um, off we went. And here we are four years later. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, outside of Vault, what, what is, you know, is there a big or, or, you know, what is the comics community, you know, what is it looking like in, in Missoula? Are there, you know, multiple shops? You know, what, what's, what, you know, what's the atmosphere like that kind of fostered this? Well, there's, there's definitely more folks than I originally, you know, assumed there was, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that, that woodwork opened up and a lot of people came out of it. And, um, we have one local store where there's, that's sort of where we congregate. Um, and that's Muse Comics and Games. They've been here for 25 years. Uh, they were here when I moved here almost 20 years ago. And that was one of the first things I did was coming from Seattle where I had multiple you know, excellent shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really wanted to make sure there was a shop here and I was definitely afraid I might be, you know, sort of landlocked from comics and sure enough, Muse Comics and Games was here and they've been here ever since. And so that's kind of our local store. And um, we used to have, obviously Hastings was a different uh, place, but they had a, a fairly large rack, but you know, with them going out of business now, it's just Muse and that's just fine. You know, having that local shop, and uh, really knowing the manager and owner mm-hmm. is really nice. And, you know, so it's a pretty good scene, actually. We have a couple of different writers here from a couple of different um, news outlets like CBR um, and The Beat at mm-hmm. one point. So it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of grown a little bit. I wouldn't say it's thriving by any, by any notion. And I don't think Vault has, has necessarily changed that mm-hmm. at all. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's just enough so that, you know, I know the same people at the shop and I see some, some pros come in and out and, you know, so it's perfect, perfect set. That's great. Uh, so, you know, in your, in your role, when you're, when you're wearing the, you know, the design hat, you know, where do you, where do you fall in, in sort of the process of, of making a book? Where, where does Tim come into play? <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, let's see. Well, you know, we kind of have an internal process that now over four years, we, we ironed out Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, sometimes that's, there's some wrinkles to it, but ultimately, you know, Adrian, uh, primarily is picking material, you know, editorially. So he's Mm -hmm. looking at it from this, you know, the story angle. Um, and often I'm just kind of, you know, taking his cues from what he's looking at story wise and then looking at the, the, the sort of the design side of it. So I'm, I'm looking for strong iconography. I'm looking for characters that can stand toe to toe with, you know, 80 year old established icons. I'm looking for, yeah. Right. So I'm looking for things that are, uh, <clears throat> that, that can really do battle on the shelf, you know? Mm-hmm. And then if they're not there, I might look for opportunities to make that a part of it without, mm-hmm. without, you know, really submarining the, uh, the writer or creator's intent, um, mm-hmm. but really bringing that to the fore. So once the editorial uh, process is complete, more or less, the, and the material has been chosen, that's usually where I'll jump in and, and want to take a look at, you know, character design. I want to take a look at, you know, kind of getting a sense of the tone and the atmosphere of a book. And then we transition from that once that's sort of established we transition to the heavy lifting, which is, which is covers. 
And so then we start talking about cover design and we start talking about sometimes if we're lucky, an approach across a series so that mm -hmm. when we put a book on a shelf, you know, it's Sarah and the Royal stars every time, or mm -hmm. it's black stars above every time. Like, you know, to recognize it, it's a uniform presentation and it best represents the book. So that's kind of where I come in and that's where we get started in earnest. And then it kind of carries it through, you know, the entire run of a series. And then when we get to the trade, it's a sort of a separate process. Since we have so much material established, then it's really easy. My job's really easy in terms of, you know, having spent time with a book on a longer run, it's then easier for me to say, okay, this might be the real opportunity for us to put a design package around this and mm -hmm. offer it up to readers and retailers in a way maybe we didn't before that's still recognizable, but fresh. So we take a, a slightly different approach to the trade. Okay, that you know that's interesting. I had a little, uh, I had a question farther down because you know with a, with a lot of trades, uh, you know, you're not really seeing sort of a, a a fresh packaging or you know basically what I wrote is you know they just take the the cover of the first issue and then you know, boom, you know collects issues one through six, or or whatever. So I was kind of curious, you know. For someone you know with that you know background with that you know with that eye, you know, what do you look for you know when it's time to to collect a trade or you know do the graphic novel uh, you know packaging whatever? It's a double-edged sword, which is like you're seeing material represented to the market. Often it's it's exactly what you saw the very first time you mm -hmm. saw it, which is good because that's identifiable. So uh, David Disanayaka, who's our PR uh, director and marketing director, mm -hmm. you know, he's pointed out some really good notes about, you know, retailers get familiar with material. So mm -hmm. then they feel safe with the material and they feel confident in ordering that material. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, maybe we haven't had an opportunity to reach the audience we hope to. Maybe it's not as big or, you know, not as broad, or we didn't get the kind of the right readers we were looking for. Like, hey, this is a horror book. We know you love horror. You maybe didn't notice it. Now we want to represent it to you so it catches your eye differently. So mm -hmm. it's a double-edged sword. So what I'm looking for really is just opportunity, just opportunity to represent something in a new way. Because if you, you know, if you think about uh, often any of the stories we read or watch or, or enjoy, you know, there's facets. So you can, we've seen trailers, right? Movie trailers are always cut right? It's the comedy. But wait, the second trailer I saw, it looked like a slasher. What, what just happened? How is that possible? They've re, you know, rebranded it essentially. They've taken a different marketing tact to appeal to a different segment of the audience that might really be interested. We're trying to do the same thing, but it's a double-edged sword. We don't want to alienate the retailer uh, from having confidence in the material. Mm -hmm. we, we need to make sure that they feel comfortable and familiar with it but we also want to represent it as well so and you know ultimately the goal is make it something that's going to last on the shelf beyond just this month the next month make it something that feels as though there's care uh, put into it that says this is worth your library this is this belongs on a shelf for a number of years mm -hmm. and that's really really the objective is is part of it you know, appealing to a, the, the regular comics reader who bought, you know, let's say all, all, every issue of Black Stars Above as it came out on Wednesdays and B, okay, now we're in bookstores. 
you know, now we're trying to grab the, the bookstore crowd as well. Yes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I have to credit, uh, I really have to credit Rom V, who was our writer for These Savage Shores. Mm-hmm. Rom came up with this idea uh, based upon his success with Paradiso, his image uh, series. Mm-hmm. And he suggested uh, a treatment for the cover of These Savage Shores that I never would have thought of. I, I thought maybe it was a little short of representing everything in the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's got some really, really good, uh, well-rounded cast of characters. Uh, and it's one of the best stories I've ever read. But Rom comes up with this idea to present the story with the simple mask of our hero. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, I, I thought, oh, boy, I, okay. But, you know, Rom, you have so much more to your story here. It looked beautiful. Samit did a great job. Samit Kumar, Kumar, the artist, did a great job rendering it. We put it together, and I would, I would say that Ram was one hundred percent correct. <laughs> so in that case, you know, the appeal of that cover alone is is drawing new readers to the strength of that story. You know, that that story can stand alone, um, but that cover with that simple mask. In the two hands of the hero's uh, love interest, holding on to it. That did it. it it's just it, it. It worked wonders in terms of uh, appeal in the book market. So that one experience right there was enough for me to say, okay, I need to balance David's thoughts around how we can market our books, and I need to balance, you know, Rom's approach with regard to the book market and appeal to those readers who maybe have never read a floppy before and no problem there. Go ahead and read the trade. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's right now in every trade collection. Uh, So uh, I'm going to, since we've sort of jumped to some of these uh, questions about trade, covers and such, uh, I think it might be time to drop in uh, our first Twitter question, uh, which we got recording. Joe Mulvey, uh, artist on The Wailing Blade with past guests on the show, Rich Dweck, asks, what is the secret to a great comic and trade cover? Ooh, wow. Uh, (laughs) You know, honestly, I don't know that there's there's definitely no secret. There's definitely no answer. Mm -hmm. I was watching a, a live stream the other day with Robert Kirkman got posed a question about the moment when you have an aha about a, a certain property. I don't know that there's ever that moment, you know, with regard to the same thing with, with dressing uh, a cover with, with presenting material. I think it's, you know, it goes back to some of the thoughts I had earlier, you know, it's honoring the material. First of all, it's accentuating, amplifying the story somehow. I do believe you know, for our single issues, our approach has been, <laughs> and people probably laugh that know me, that have heard this note a thousand times, bigger, bigger. I want to see the character bigger, bigger. I want to fill up 100% of that cover with that hero, with that main <laughs> character, with that villain. I want, P- I want our characters to stand right next to Wonder Woman. I want Sarah of the Royal Stars, you know, to stand right next to Wonder Woman and do business. And that, I think, is the secret is, if there is one, is that, you know, take a look at what's there 
you know, um, and take a look at how will we not only differentiate ourselves, but how can we stand toe to toe with the other publishers and attract the reader's eye. So I'm looking at big iconography, star, you know, stark, strong contrast, a confidence, confidence in the material, confidence in the presentation, and it kind of has to fit together, it has to look as if we gave a shit, uh, quite frankly. And sometimes I see stuff and I think, wow, that was marvel. That's marvelous art. But uh, maybe someone might have want to pay attention to how that design worked uh, in, in presenting it. One of the, one of the things, you know, you've worked, when it, Vault has, you know, different uh, themed variant covers and uh, uh, you and uh, Nathan Gooden worked together on the uh, Vault Vintage line, uh, you know, where you had variants on number ones that are throwbacks to uh, classic comic covers. So, uh, for example, uh, the plot number one had a variant homage to Bernie Rison's House of Secrets 92. Uh, Heist number one had a uh, variant to Kirby's Eternals number one. You know, all, all great looking stuff. Uh, you know, when you're talking about this, this kind of like themed line of variants, you know, what goes into curating something like that, uh, especially a high concept one like, like the Vault Vintage line? That one definitely was high concept and that was sort of a group effort. And we arrived there, I think by mistake, like by accident, um, by experimentation. And, you know, sometimes that's, that's one of the greatest advantages I think that we've had thus far is that we're a very, very small team. You know, we're really a core of say five or six people, mm -hmm. you know, and that's varied and, you know, we've grown out a little bit. Um, but anyway, uh, on the, on the point of the vintages, um, the vault vintage line. Um, it was a mistake in that I was experimenting with uh, doing what if Jack Kirby had drawn heathen? Cause I a hundred percent believe Jack Kirby would have been in the independent space, mm -hmm. you know, uh, right now. And he'd been, you know, as prolific and, and as thriving as he always was. But I thought, you know, what if, what if Jack Kirby drew our shield, you know, our, our young Viking, you know, mm -hmm. And what would that look like? So I, I kind of mocked it up and it worked. And, and I thought, well, you know, if you're going to do a homage, you better be not only calling out who mm -hmm. you're homaging, but why. And, I, you know, often the, the, the industry standard is, you know, so-and-so after Jack Kirby, right? So yeah. they'll sign their name. The artist will sign their name. And you don't really see a correlation between the material uh, and that they're homaging, nor the modern material that they're presenting. And it's just, it so, almost feels kind of slapdash in a way. Like mm -hmm. someone just really had a good idea to, to, or an idea to homage one of their favorites. Sure. And I thought, let's, let's really, when Adrian, it was actually Adrian Wassel's idea to do this for a full year and uh, every cover, uh, mm -hmm. every first issue. And I thought, okay, then we have to be, you know, really diligent about the material we're sourcing uh, with both, you know, historically and what we're presenting in our book so that there's an actual thematic or character uh, or, or some element that's tied between the two. Mm -hmm. And that when you're looking at the cover, the cover actually that you're homaging is actually in sync with what it's presenting uh, with this contemporary story. 
So there was sort of a set criteria developed from that one sort of tripping over myself uh, effort with heathen. Um, and then, which has never seen the light of day, and we never printed it because it was never intended to be. It was, it was more like an experiment. And so that then kicked off the entire vintage line. And so Nate and I would go about finding uh, the material and the person we wanted to honor and recognize for their landmark uh, work in the industry. So, you know, that's why you see folks like Frank Miller, you know, you, you see the kind of names you'd expect to see there. We've done John Byrne, Frank Miller, Jack Kirby, Jack Kirby a couple times. You know, the, the names that really have left an indelible mark on the industry. And we tried to cast that net as wide as we could. And that's why you see contemporaries like Fiona Staples for She Said Destroy, yep. which, you know, is like Fiona's left her mark on this industry as much as anyone else has. So <laughs> Fiona Staples, you know, let's, let's homage her. So, and it fit. She said, destroy Alana on the cover from Saga. It all sort of synced together. So it takes some thought and, you know, it, it, it did take some planning, but it takes some, some good accidents as well along the way. Mm -hmm. um, with, with the actual, you know, with the creators on the book, is there like consultation with them in terms of, hey, we're thinking about doing, you know, this for your, <laughs> vigorous head shakes <laughs> it's, oh, no it's only video, surprise right? no it's only audio no video no 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 on the uh go ahead yeah on no the, i think uh, i got the whole question now. <laughs> <laughs> on the uh on the vintage no okay quite often no because there was there was sometimes um a bit of a challenge to connect the two stories like to having to explain the criteria every time and have, you know, we get as creators, I think we all get really close to what we do and we don't want to necessarily see it presented in a way that we might not envision right away. Okay. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's better to illustrate that by saying, look, here's daredevil 184 and that fits with friendo and here's why because no more mr nice guy for daredevil meant mm -hmm. picking up a revolver and you know w wait was that cover suggesting that daredevil is going to kill bullseye or you know kill one of his adversaries um bullseye you know daredevil doesn't do that bullseye does that and friendo having a, an aspect to where we have a a good guy that goes sideways based upon his experience who you know is really no more mr nice guy either and mm -hmm. so this guy's sort of been given permission through this ai uh to really act on his worst impulses mm -hmm. so there was a, there was a tie that i saw that maybe maybe alex pactadel might not have right away maybe he would have thought differently maybe that would have brought something different but i'm also looking for that gigantic Frank Miller, you know, cover that 184 with the yellow background and the big bold stark contrast of Daredevil, and the gun is right in our face when you know where we're in the shelf, and that's provocative. So that's that's why. So often the vintages didn't come with a whole lot of engagement to the creator side because the engagement there comes with getting the A cover right. So working with them extensively on that whether it's the writer, the artist, the colorist. So there was extensive back and forth on every single A cover we've ever done. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. 
Uh, and then uh, this year, you guys are doing a uh, pulp and paint line, which is uh, an homage to, uh, you know, classic vintage uh, pulp and, and, and paperback covers. Uh, I saw a great one today uh, when I was, I was digging, digging around on Twitter uh, for the plot number six. Uh, I think Christian drew it. Looks like a weathered old paperback. Uh, even has a used sticker uh, on it. <laughs> uh, you know, can you, like, with that specific cover, just kind of picking one out of the ether, uh, and since, you know, it's, it's one that hasn't come out yet or is going to be out soon, you know, can you give us a little bit of the taste of the process, you know, the sort of back and forth between you and Chris on, on this particular variant? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so Chris, as you know, uh, is one hell of a superstar upcoming artist. I mean, he is, he's talented beyond what I imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when he was creating some covers, for his new series that's coming out this fall as part of our nightfall line that's mm-hmm. called the autumnal with daniel Krause and jason wordy and jim campbell i think mm-hmm. i might be wrong on the letters um but uh you know chris was presenting some of his thoughts on the autumnal covers and he was doing charcoal and i thought that was unusual i couldn't recall a time where i'd seen charcoal work uh used as the basis to then bring in more of the traditional elements or digital elements now. And so when I saw his designs for autumnal, I immediately sent him a copy of the book called paperbacks from hell by, uh, <laughs> yeah. By Grady Hendrix. Are you familiar with it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. See that's, that, there you go. That's kind of my treasure trove for inspiration lately. Um, and so I sent him a copy of, of paperbacks from hell. And he was keenly interested in that. So I was like, here, here's a copy. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, and it's, you know, it's interesting that you're doing what you're doing. Uh, if you haven't even seen that book yet, when you open it up, you'll see what I'm talking about, the relationship. And so it made perfect sense for us, Lore, uh, working with Chris on the plot for doing the, the paperback covers, which he's done for five and six, and he'll do for seven and eight. So what we wanted to do was do our own sort of battered paperbacks from hell presentation. And um, if you look closely at those used stickers, they're all from a place called Comfort Notch. And Comfort Notch is the town in the autumnal. So there is a relationship on the covers from our, the plot to the fictional town, the neighboring town in Wisconsin. We're in with the plot. We're in, we're in Maine. Uh, the autumnal set in Wisconsin at this place called Comfort Notch. So all these used plot paperbacks have been bought or sold through this fictitious uh, Comfort Notch used bookstore, which is in Chris's story with Daniel, the autumnal. So it was our way of just sort of, um, I really wanted people to see what Chris was doing as, as much as we possibly could uh, leading up to the autumnal. Cause I, I really, really want people to discover him if they have not yet already to discover the astounding amount of talent he has. That is, that is so we wait for us to kind of, yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) you know, those are the opportunities that we get because we have, you know, a really strong, um, just, uh, just a really strong um, relationship with all of our creators, you know, whether it's me or whether it's Adrian or whether it's Nathan, you know, whether it's Damien, it doesn't matter. Like we all seem to forge these relationships 
that we do invest in quite a bit. And so when we see opportunities on the commercial side, it's that much easier to say, let's, let's do this. This will work. You know, we have good confidence in each other. Let's, let's do it. So that was, you know, literally just uh, Chris and I sort of back and forth on what we wanted the designs for those books to look like. And I wanted everyone to look like it was part of a bargain bin at a used bookstore. So there you go. Awesome. Um, you know, looking back on, on the past few years and, and, you know, designing trade, trade dress and, and stuff for books, you know, what are, you know, do you have a couple of, you know, logos uh, that you've designed for the, you know, the various vault books that, uh, you know, maybe are, are some of your favorites or stand out, uh, you know, to, to you more, you know, personally? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I do have favorites. And I have some that I'm, I just, I wish I could go back in time too, right? In all fairness, yeah. uh, I just, I just don't simply hit the mark all the time. And um, I wish I could. And that, that's, by the way, part of the answer to your trade question is sometimes it's going back to hit the mark that I missed the first time. Hmm. So it's me trying to go back and George Lucas this shit so that I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully, and hopefully do it right. Um, but um, these Savage Shores for sure. Uh, I love the simplicity of it. Uh, I love, I love how it's just, it's bold. It's easily recognizable. Um, uh, definitely. Um, the trade dress for black stars above which is coming mm -hmm. um i wanted it to to feel like a combination between a good old-fashioned black rock metal band t-shirt and an a24 movie you know so i wanted it to feel like you know the combination of the two and i think it hits the mark um that book is extraordinary and i can't wait for people to discover it and trade um and so i felt really proud about how that all gelled together finally uh, on the trade because I feel like I might have missed the mark initially mm -hmm. they did five or six passes on the uh, single issue address and um, I was happy to have another shot at it for sure um, so that one and I you know biased I love the plot because <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it to me if I weren't working on it um, I'd buy it for how beautiful Josh Hickson's work is and I'd buy it because it speaks to me in that old school horror way you know the EC horror way mm -hmm. um, and so I would definitely say that um, yeah I have a few favorites and I have a few that I just like I said I wish I could go back in time I love Submerged Submerged was one of the mm -hmm. first books where I really really put elbow grease into it and we ended up having something I think for Vita Ayala Mm -hmm. And Lisa Sterl that turned out beautifully and it worked well to represent the book. Um, I imagine, you know, you look through a lot of, of you know, non-comics sources for design ideas and inspiration. Uh, you mentioned paperbacks from hell already, uh, obviously, but you know, what, what, what kind of stuff, like if you're stumped for an idea, will you sort of kind of root around for to, you know? Yeah, I have a, I have a, I yeah. had I get those stumped moments. I definitely do. And I want to look then I want to look past I want to look to the past, like the distant past. I want to look to the 30s and 40s. So I have a few different collections of like pulp magazines or you know that collect say covers from pulp the pulp era. I have a few uh a couple of different books like uh you mentioned uh before we jumped on, you know, Jacob Phillips. I have Sean Phillips 
mm-hmm. a couple of his books that deal with his you know, just his sketches and some of his design work. I think Sean's an extraordinary, not only extraordinary artist, but I think Sean's an extraordinary designer as well. And that often doesn't get remarked on, I suppose, because we all love to think of people, you know, Sean's an artist. Well, Sean does just about damn near everything. And so, you know, looking at his work uh, is very informative. I tend to look, um, then I tend to go really outside and I start to look at stuff like Time Magazine. Um, I think a few years back, Playboy caught my off because they had done a, a radical redesign of the, of the magazine and it, it was totally different experience for me. So I actually brought some of that design influence from this redesigned relaunched Playboy to heavy metal when I was there for about six, nine months. I actually worked on the magazine for that period of time. And I was trying to do the same thing, which is, you know, kind of grow it up and represent it in a way that would be um, very modern, but still holding on to the anchor of heavy metal. So um, yeah, I tend to look outside and I don't, I don't, I don't really look at um, design books per se. I answered this question the other day to a friend who asked it and I said, I look at how books are designed. So I'll just look at my shelf. You know, I will look, I will just look across that whole, you know, Vista and then look at different treatments and how are they all put together. But I definitely get stumped. There's no doubt about that. Um, I, I, again, in, in, in digging around through Twitter, uh, AKA research, uh, I found a, <laughs> uh, a poster you made for an imaginary Goonie sequel, uh, for your daughter. And, uh, <laughs> First of all, oh, second of all, <laughs> uh, sec- uh, second of all, how often do you get to work on stuff like that where, you know, it's just for kicks? Yeah, uh, very rarely. <laughs> and very rarely and at about three or four in the morning, honestly. Uh, uh, really? Um, yeah, that's, you know, I used to do a lot. I mean, a lot more of that. And as the volume, you know, has continued, as our growth has continued, as a company evolved, mm-hmm. um, and that that's been more and more challenging. I do a lot of design work for um, people that ask for it that never sees the light of day publicly, and it's it's used to illustrate maybe uh, to a distributor how uh, a film can look. Uh, it's used to uh, show a director sort of the approach, like a director might have an idea about how they want a film portrayed to the studio in their treatment. I do a lot of stuff like that that never sees the light of day and I, I cannot share it. And so that's that's really the, the fun part. But, you know, that's one where uh, my daughter and I were talking and I was just like, we started telling the story and I was like, I got, I got to go downstairs and make this poster. And uh, <laughs> I happened to know someone that knows Chris Columbus. So I was like, here, please send this to Mr. Columbus and tell him, thank you. Because now he's inspired both my daughters and uh, he's, he's just, you know, that story has uh, captivated them to the point where they both want to be storytellers. So the Goonies is like eternal uh, now in our household. So. Goonies never say die. We had to make our yeah. own sequel. It never. No, never. It, I, I, you know, we had to make our own sequel because it's not. I don't think it's going to be happening anytime soon. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, 
on the whole, you know, you mentioned uh, Sean Phillips. Are you are you an art collector? And by that I mean, like, you know, is your is your studio slash house slash detached garage, whatever, just plastered <laughs> in old movie posters or original comic art, anything like that? Yes. Yeah, I should say this. That's a great question. And uh, I should say this: when I get stumped, I also look at the art of Mondo. The art of the, the Mondo posters, mm-hmm. uh, the collected book of all what they had done up to maybe. 2018, 2019. That mm-hmm. is extraordinary. So I've got, I've managed to get a couple of those on the wall. They're exceedingly difficult to get a hold of. And I, you know, I had to get my, you know, reservation in during the time period. I have a couple of those. I have um, some work from Paul Shipper and Brian Taylor. They, they, uh, they do digital paint painting. Uh, I have like a classic aliens, uh, Frankenstein, Blade Runner, and then comics comics line the walls everywhere um and i rotate up stuff that i buy so that when i'm working i'm looking at that wall and i'm using some of the most iconic you know designs uh that's like the say the swamp thing the house of secrets that's the kind of stuff he did and that's the kind of stuff that i'm very i feel like is eternal so yeah that's that's what's just filled the office space because it's all visual reference and input for me Totally random aside of, well, not totally random, um, <laughs> <laughs> but did you see, have you seen uh, all of the Batman, the animated series one shots that Mondo has done over the years? There, there's a, yes. Only, only that Matt, only that a few of them I think are in the actual collected book. Um, I want to say maybe a dozen, but yeah. Because um, they're doing a book that collects all of them coming out in September, I think. Uh, well, Christmas. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's believe me. That that's oh, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I already have it on my list. <laughs> yep, Santa's uh, getting the note right now. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's the kind of stuff I love, man. I love stuff like that. I could collect that all day long. I mean. And I've had to, you know, start to be choosier and choosier about that because of space constraints. And, you know, there's just not enough time in the day, you know, mm-hmm. how many Star Wars, Art of Star Wars books can I buy before the, the shelf snaps, you know, so <laughs> I've tried to be more choosy, <laughs> but that one sounds great. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's uh, actually, you know what, this is a good transition. So, you know, in addition to, to all the art and the design stuff that we just talked about, you know, you're also a writer. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you, you wear a lot of hats. And, and mm-hmm. so when you're working on a, on a book or, you know, your various jobs, how compartmentalized are you? So let's say, you know, hey, it's Tuesday. I, I'm going to finish, you know, the next script uh, of, of the plot. Hey, it's Wednesday. I got to work on, you know, these next, uh, you know, few covers. Or is it all just, you know, one, this, the same work pile? No. I've tried to, you know, that, that's an excellent question as well. I've tried to keep that very compartmentalized because I, I feel like um, I've, I never want anyone, any creator, anyone, anyone feeling as if uh, just because I'm a partner at Vault mm-hmm. and I write a book at Vault that my book is going to take precedence. No, mm-hmm. you know, like that's, that's sort of my cardinal rule, which is like I want to I die for their books first. You know, I want to, I want to go the distance with their books first. So, you know, vault gets 
all the attention, 100%. And those two, 3 a.m., uh, you know, writing sessions are where the plot happens. And, the, you know, the occasional weekend notes, uh, the Sunday night, you know, when everybody's asleep in the house, my daughters are asleep, where I, mm-hmm. I sneak down to the basement and, and uh, you know, start on the plot, which will probably happen tonight, uh, <laughs> you know, as we wrap up the series. And, mm-hmm. you know, that I, wanted, I always wanted to keep that very distinct. I never, ever want any creator to feel as though I've put my own personal book in front of the, the health and welfare of theirs. I want mm. them to feel like, nope, I can clearly see the investment here is 100%. So yeah, I've kept that very, very distinct. And so, you know, that's a, a Monday through Friday, you know, 10 to 12 hour days for vault. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in the evenings, I usually start again around 1030 or 11. And I usually go till about two. Mm. And uh, I started about nine in the morning. Um, so I've been doing that for over almost uh, 20 years, uh, for comics before I joined vault. So it's sort of a continuation of my habits all along. So yeah, keeping that very separate, I think is key because I do want to devote hundred percent of myself to every vault book. I mm-hmm. never, ever want that standard to dip, especially not, uh, you know, in lieu of my own book. Sure. Not going to happen. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll quit writing before I do that or I'll figure out maybe I need to move on. Right. I never want, I never want to jeopardize those wall books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit uh, about the plot. Uh, your, your current series with uh, co-writer Michael Morrissey, uh, Joshua Hickson on art, uh, Kurt Michael Russell on colors uh, and Jim Campbell letterer. Uh, you know, just to, I'm going to, for the listener's benefit, I'm going to read, just read the solicit for the first issue. Uh, when Chase Blaine's estranged brother and sister-in-law are murdered, he becomes guardian to Mackenzie and Zach, the niece and nephew he hardly knows. Uh, seeking stability for the children, Chase moves his newly formed family to his ancestral home in Cape Augusta, which overlooks a deep black bogland teeming with family secrets. Uh, this is this is you know one of Vault's uh, you know their their uh, horror series. Um, you know what is what is the origin of this project? You know who approached who about working on what because you know I, I always like to imagine creative teams assembling as like the first half hour of oceans 11 <laughs> <laughs> man i wish i was that cool i really do <laughs> i I'd give anything to be george clooney or don Cheadle, you know um wouldn't we uh, all <laughs> yeah seriously come on um uh, so <laughs> here's how it works uh or it works for the plot uh mike and i mike Maurice and i had done two books before um one is called Curse, and the other one is called Burning Fields. And at the time, that well, was 2014, 2016, I think. And those were at boom. Um, at the time, uh, we, you know, we really had always planned to do a trilogy, like a horror trilogy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, things changed, right? So, you know, along comes Vault and my commitment there and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, ramping up the company and all that. And Mike, you know, Mike goes off and starts writing star wars and doing novels and um you know and that's great we never got around to it and then finally um i would say uh what two years ago now two and a, a year and a half ago mike mike just wrote and he was like hey you know do you want to go for it do you want to try the third book and i was like yeah oh, sure yeah of course mm-hmm. and like burning fields he sent me about a paragraph or so of an idea 
and I said, wait a minute, hold up, hold up. And I dug into my vault and, and you know, my pitch vault. And I was like, I've been sitting on this since 2012. I have this idea mm -hmm. uh, about this, this, this family, uh, a clan, uh, and something that comes out of a bog. And it just dovetailed perfectly with what Mike was setting up with this family that was having to return to their ancestral home. He wanted to explore the space that Mike Flanagan's been exploring in his films and with, you know, the haunting of Hill House. He wanted to do something adjacent to that, um, but not 100%, you know, obviously not 100% similar. So it was this, we kind of fit those two parts together. And we had a very, very short list of artists. And, you know, Josh Hickson mm -hmm. uh, was right there. And we had seen his work on Shanghai Red. Mm -hmm. And so um, with um, Chris Sabella. And we knew Josh might be available at that point. It was like a break point for him. And it, it had just finished up. So we immediately uh, sent him the pitch and said, hey, would you, would you be interested? We know you, know, you do a lot of horror, uh, but it hasn't really seen the light of the day yet. You know, uh, for a publisher, you've mm -hmm. done some self-publishing, some local stuff with horror. We'd love to see you do that. And there was, you know, was some elements, flashes of that in Shanghai Red, but not, not straight horror. And I thought, mm -hmm. okay, this could really work. So, um, yeah, that was it. That, that was how it came to be. It was always Mike and I having that goal of completing the, the horror trilogy, so to speak. And so um, here we are, you know, and it, <laughs> and it worked out really well. <laughs> the results speak for themselves. And, you know, honestly, I think the linchpin to the whole thing has been Josh and now Kurt. Um, and, you know, Jim, Jim Campbell, our letter, Jim is, was introduced to me through Mike. And Jim has done every single one of those books. And I don't think we'd ever work with anyone else for that, for that matter. Jim now just, un, you know, inherently understands what we're doing. And so he's, a, he's an extreme, you know, Eisner-nominated professional. So it's not like we're going to go out and get much better, right, at all. So, yeah. So there it is. It's not, not nearly as cool as, like I said, as, as George Clooney or Don Chieto. <laughs> it is when I put the music in the background. No. Um. <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Just a running baseline the whole time. No. Uh. <laughs> little electronic uh yeah no but uh you know you, you mentioned uh you know kurt comes in halfway through on colors yes. how does that sort of change change the game uh for you guys going you know in the second uh half of the book you know it was interesting because it was perfect time uh jordan boyd who was the letter for the first arc did a fantastic mm -hmm. job and 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 you know J jordan really gave us that classic ec uh, feel, you know, mm -hmm. sort of a desaturated color palette, but, um, you know, enough punch in the colors so that we really got sort of unbalanced, I think. I think the readers, you know, picked up on that. I think that's been a, a huge part of our success. Jordan was looking to move on out of comics into some other opportunities uh, that were presented to him. Um, so having Kurt Michael already uh, working at Vault on Money Shot and seeing his work there and then seeing him work on Dark One, which is a 240-page graphic novel uh, based on Brandon Sanderson's story. Um, and Nate was showing me what he was doing. And I started dug, you know, sort of dug into those colors and I thought, oh my God, you know, this guy's versatile. 
like he's he's top notch but he's very versatile at the same time and so we had this perfect break point where we're between two volumes and volume you know volume two begins in 1674 300 years before the start of the plot Mm -hmm. and so it was this perfect way to sort of introduce a new colorist and have them put their stamp on it and to have it done in, in, a, in an issue of the book that feels apart from all the rest. And so it was this really nice bit of timing. And as hard as it was for us to lose Jordan, um, along comes Kurt Michael Russell and we don't miss a beat. And now, you know, seeing, seeing six and seven start to happen and watching Kurt really put his own voice into it and the colors becoming more and more surrealistic in a way. Um, as the story like really unfolds itself now um, is, is really, it's a great payoff, I think, for the reading experience. That's great. Uh, so your probably earliest comic related credit was co-writing the Walking Dead Survivor's Guide with Robert Kirkman. H- how'd you get in, in on that? <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah. Um, so, um, uh, my earliest credit, uh, Matt was, um, it was at the time I was working, um, for Jim Valentino at Shadowline and Image. Sure. So there was that relationship there and I was a huge fan of Powers with Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Oming and a huge fan of The Walking Dead as I had just discovered it, I to it late and, um, but I was hooked. And those first eight volumes for me for The Walking Dead are like, they're brilliant. And, you know, they're the kind of stuff that really inspired me to, to give this a go as a writer. And um, I didn't really have, an, I couldn't see a clear path into comics. But I knew I had some ability as a web designer to design. So I started designing. And I started designing logos for Shadowline, Shadowline books. And I designed websites for Brian Michael Bendis and Robert Kirkman. And I designed basically what is like the complete encyclopedic presentation on a website for both Powers and The Walking Dead. And so the material for both those books was already there. So simultaneously, I was separately offered the chance to help out on those and to help craft encyclopedias for both. And so I I more or less asked Robert if I could write a survivor's guide you know like who are all these characters you're eight volumes in you know nine or eight or nine volumes in at that point you know is there a way for readers to know you know if you're if you're just starting on issue 72 will you know who Shane was for instance right will you know who those couple volumes were kind of a cliff cliff notes presentation And Robert said, design it, approval, and you'll have editorial through Cena Grace. And, you know, Charlie will get a look at everything and get a sign off on it. Uh, do it. And so I did. And that's, that's how that came to pass. And at the time, that kind of mm, sort of spilled into other things as Skybound formed. Uh, I, was, I was there to help with that and, and design some merchandise and designed uh, some, some occasional work on books. And so that was a huge education between the Skybound work as that became Skybound and Shadowline 
uh, with Jim Valentino, a lot, a huge education. Cause I got to see basically how books are produced start to finish. So that was like invaluable uh, experience for me. And that's how I ended up on the walking dead. That's how I ended up with the credit and uh, you know, it's a four issue series. So it was really fun. And, you know, talk about uh, kind of living a dream right there to be able to, you know, have one of my uh, favorite books to be something I got to contribute something small to. Uh, but I'm very proud of it. And you also got to uh, appear as a zombie in the pilot of the television series. I did. Yes. I, again, uh, very generous uh, by Robert Kirkman and um, the producer of that show, David Alpert. Uh, they, they, they brought myself. I got to go with my, me, uh, Charlie Adler. Charlie came over from England. Uh, and then um, Gary Witta, who, uh, writer, uh, film writer. Um, most recently, I think Rogue One was one of his yep. biggest, more recent credits. Um, and we got to be in the show. And... Uh, Greg Nicotero's group, the uh, NFX, I think they're called, uh, K&B. Uh, they did all the makeup. Um, I got to sort of watch everything for four days down in Atlanta. Uh, it was a dream of a lifetime. I, you know, standing literally next to Frank Darabont, why he's directing with a bullhorn, uh, <laughs> in the middle of an intersection in downtown Atlanta with 99 degrees and 90% humidity <laughs> and watching people work their ass off and watching 300 zombies chase a guy on horseback down the street was surreal it was amazing um and so yeah i'm very grateful for that and yes i actually do appear on camera a couple times um and uh it was really fun i'm the only zombie with a hat on because i go nowhere without my hat <laughs> good good to know what to watch for yeah was, I, I, I stepped on, i stepped into the wardrobe and the guy goes hey you're the montana guy right and i'm like yeah and he goes, well, you're the hunter. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hunt, but all right. Yeah, Montana hunting. Yeah, sure. <laughs> how, how, long, how long was hair and makeup for that? That was extraordinary because those guys, Nicotero's group, they had about, I'm going to guess about six, eight, maybe four to, four to eight chairs mm -hmm. where they were doing the quote extras. And then they had uh, trailers where they were doing like the full applique. So if you know, you got a chunk of your neck chewed out, mm -hmm. you know, they were going to put that applique on there and then really do some detailing. Um, and then, you know, then they graduated up into the heroes and the hero zombies were obviously a lot of them were stuntmen because mm -hmm. they had to do some serious shit, right? They had to, they had to tackle a horse. Uh, they had to, you know, jump under a tank. And I watched, you know, people do some dangerous shit uh, around that. So those were the hero zombies. So that took them, like it was like four in the morning it would start mm -hmm. and then they were still going like we would get there um eight or nine they were still going and they would still be going after we left the makeup trailer so for us myself took about i'm gonna guess about 45 minutes to an hour and a half maybe mm -hmm. um and it was like simple applications like a neck bite a cheek slash a broken nose they gave me um and then you know so they did a few applications i wasn't a hero I didn't have close-ups or anything like that, but mm -hmm. I was in camera and I was, you know, front and center. So I had to be made up properly for that. So was Charlie. So some of the tricks they were using were really cool because they're simple things you would find around the house, uh, like uh, conditioning your hair to create grease, uh, mouthwash with food coloring. 
to create black teeth, like real simple, like stuff is splashing paint on the faces to give like that dappled sort of rotted flesh effect over the appliques. Really cool stuff. Very talented people. And like the, like the, the phrase horse. hero zombie that keeps coming up, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, like, I didn't know what I, I, I didn't know. I, I'd only, I, I'd never been on a television show before. Um, and here's seven Blana, you know, sequestered from the rest of the city. And, you know, there's helicopters lying in the middle of the street and, and there's, there's overturned buses and, and it's, it looked 100% real. I mean, 100%. They had done their homework of dressing that entire, you know, seven block area, four block area, whatever it was. And man, it was extraordinary. But I had never heard things like hero, you know, like they had contacts that they would put in if you appeared in extreme close ups so that you'd have the bloodshot effect of the eyes or that mm-hmm. it would knock out your, you know, your pupil and, and present a different look to the eye. And I didn't know what a, a hero zombie was. I'm like, is this, what have they done to the adaptation of The Walking Dead? You know, like, I don't know. <laughs> so it was, it was really cool. Really cool. Yeah. When you were talking about the, the horror trilogy you're doing uh, with Mike Marisi earlier, uh, you mentioned Curse, which is a... Uh, a werewolf comic you did uh, with art from Colin Lormer and one of my favorite horror artists out there right now, Riley Rossmo. Um, yes. It's a great, I'm a, aside from Batman and anthropomorphic cat people, uh, werewolves <laughs> are also part of my brand. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I have a very unusual brand. Um, <laughs> Batman, werewolves, cat people. Okay. Actually, I'll that's pretty good. I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. I'll yeah. take it. Yeah, um, I I really dug Curse with this really human angle. This you know guy who is looking to save his son and finds an immortal werewolf, and it becomes this whole "How far will you go?" sort of thing. Um, are you a big werewolf guy? Is that is that one of your things? Ah, <laughs> yes, most definitely, most definitely. And uh, you know, it's it's interesting because it's it's the sort of the thirst for finding the kind of werewolf stories that I think we could be telling. Yeah. You know, where, where are they? I mean, like uh, I, you know, look, I, the underworld and all that kind of stuff and, you know, true blood and, and the representation of werewolves and that, I mean, there's always something a little cheeky about the werewolf. And I don't know why people think that's funny at all. Like to me, it's not a comedy. You're talking about the beast within that we all, I think possess. Um, Anyway, so yeah, I'm just looking for those stories, you know? Um, so yeah, that's where Curse came from, if that was the actual question, which is like, yeah, Curse <laughs> came from the idea of wanting to see some some really nitty-gritty werewolf tales, something very grounded, something that felt relatively plausible. Were you around at Skybound when Kirkman was doing his uh, werewolf book, when he was doing mm-hmm. uh, Astounding Wolfman? Yes. That's a yeah. another... Yeah, I mean, like that's that's great. I mean, there's lots and lots of things that, you know, the, the werewolf has proven to be very uh, malleable, you know, very versatile, I suppose. But, you know, like that's fun to me, right? The underworlds, the, the you know, the, the astounding werewolf, like all that's fun. That's fun. But I, man, when you talk werewolf tales, I want, you know, I want the kind of werewolf tale that makes it feel like that could be my neighbor. Holy shit. You know, like <laughs> my neighbor is going out at night, ripping people apart. Like, okay, that's, 
that's pretty cool. Like Stephen King's Cycle of the Werewolf with Bernie oh, Wrightson. Bernie Wrightson. Oh. Right? Uh, you ever read uh, The Wolf Sour, uh, Robert McCammon? No, I read Boy, Boy's Life by Robert McCammon, but I haven't read What's uh, this? What, what? The Wolf Sour. Basically, uh, World War II, uh, Russian, a Russian guy who's emigrated to England and is an English spy and werewolf fighting Nazis. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad people can't see my face right now. Uh, I'm, making, I'm making inappropriate faces. <laughs> the, the wolf sour. It, it, it should be out there in paperback. It is, a, you know, the cover on it is, or at least the cover from the edition I got many moons ago is a paperback from hell cover. And oh. it's, it, it's, a, it, it's still in print and worth your time. I mean, yeah. All right, so McCammon, Wolf's Hour. Yep. All right, I'm all over it. Great now, recommendation. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I, I love. <laughs> Since we're talking horror, and uh, <laughs> this is this podcast, uh, we are obligated to ask this question. Uh, where do you stand <laughs> on the uh, sure. cinematic classic Halloween 3 season of The Witch? <laughs> you know, okay. All right, so I saw that fucking thing in the theater. and i remember going and i remember during like feeling so queasy and sick to my stomach and like what is this what is this you know (laughs) (laughs) and now now uh, you know as a 52 year old man i'm looking back and i'm like and i've watched it and i and and recently and i'm like okay my 15 year old brain was not ready for that you know mm-hmm. as as i've discovered about a lot of things you know and i know that's not a carpenter film but a lot of things that are you know like um that were presented at that time mm-hmm. there was a lot of shit going on in those films man <laughs> and you know that is <laughs> that is uh i'm gonna give it a, a major thumbs up and I'm going to wish they would have just called it Season of the Witch and it would have been its own thing and it would have been like a timeless classic not associated or weighed down by Halloween. How's that? I'm going to split the difference probably for, for not, many not the, not the first person to say that on this podcast. Oh, okay. And I think every time okay, we've good. had a guest on with like a horror bent and, and you know, that opinion has, has come up. And we've had, we've had Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler both talk about it. Separately, we broke up yeah, the tag Those team, guys know but, their uh, shit. Yeah, yeah, no, those exactly. Those guys know their shit. They know far more than I do. And, you know, it's often that uh, those guys are presenting things to me on Twitter or, you know, just a quick message, you know, a quick DM. And it's like, uh, all right, I, I got to go dig into this. Those guys know their shit. So oh, yeah. if, I ended up, if I ended up in their camp, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we're going to move on to a couple of Twitter questions as we're kind of winding down yes. here. Uh, yeah. This first one comes from, or actually the second one, because we already asked one, uh, comes from a friend of the show, Dan McMahon. Uh, wanted to know uh, who would win in a fight, uh, Swamp Thing or the Bog Monster from the plot. However, we know that the Bog, you know, the Bog Monster is your creation, so we know how you're going to answer. So we're, we're going to spin this a little bit. What oh. we're, <laughs> we're going we're to ask is how, how long does Swampy last before he uh, loses? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. There it is. That's the real thing because I don't, 
I don't think Swampy would be fighting Boggy. Let's put it that way. Okay. Uh, okay. The the Bog Monster answers to answers to its own master. You know, the the Bog Monster is not uh, necessarily. They, yeah, yeah, it's not the big boss. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah, poor Swampy. I love Swamp Thing. So and I, you know, obviously we've already talked about Bernie Wrightson. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not even gonna. Ah, oh, shit, man. The Bog Monster will whip his ass. <laughs> there we go. Asked an answer. There you go. That's, that's for Dan. That answer is strictly for Dan. <laughs> All right. Uh, next one uh, comes from David Andrew, who wrote Resident for Vault. Uh, he would like to know, uh, favorite guilty pleasure movie? He knows this because I told it to him yesterday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> I know people just, I know that people can't accept that film. I can. And I told David this, uh, watch the film strictly as a love letter, strictly as a love letter to American Graffiti, to Errol Flynn, to Marlon Brando, to uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Watch it as what it is. It's a love letter. These two dudes you know, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are basically making a love letter to the films that they inspire, inspired them and their own. It's kind of like a self-congratulation, I think, because each of those films and more are very represented. And so eh, as a film, ugh. Uh, <laughs> as an Indiana <laughs> Jones film, uh, you know, but uh, through that prism, I can really appreciate it. That's my guilt. It, probably not the most you know, crazy answer, but there you go. I, I will tell I have to tell you. All right. So I watched like last week or, or maybe it was the week before, whatever. Uh, a, for the first time as a 40 year old man, Indiana Jones and the temple of doom. Never seen it before. Okay. And yeah. I, I, yeah, I didn't know where to go with it. Cause I was like, I'm watching it in 2020. So I've got like, you know, 35 plus years of like cultural sensitivity training in me now. And I'm like, yes, Oh, crazy. boy. This movie's doing a lot of racism. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Like, there's stuff there that you now, you struggle to be mm, thinking about. You know, like, that's one way of putting it. Yeah. Or you just feel outright shame for the people involved because the attitudes have radically changed. And then there's also the whole idea of, like, one minute you're on a roller coaster and the next kids are getting whipped. Like, kids <laughs> are getting, children are getting beaten. Yep. <laughs> like, Okay, that's some dark shit going on in that film. And it's sandwiched in between Raiders and Last Crusade, which those two feel like they're on a continuum. Yes. And then there's Temple of Doom in the middle, and it's like, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> so, so, it's, so it's like the Nolan Batman trilogy? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what's funny too? Like speaking of like the season of the witch and that being a thing, you know, a third movie that, you know, so left field from the other two, right? Um, I felt like when I, again, when I saw Last Crusade in the theater, I walked out of that baffled. But now, now that I'm, I'm older, now that I have children, now that I see my dad, you know, getting older and my, my father figures advancing in age, oh man, that's, that's vaulted right up to the top um, of, of that list for those reasons. So it's like, I'm starting to recognize these changes going on in me mm-hmm. and seeing them reflected in the films and my taste in those films or taste in stories and why. So definitely things, you know, 
that I didn't first recognize season of the witch, uh, the last crusade. Those are things that I've definitely come around to. Mm-hmm. And dare I say, I'm slowly coming around to the star Wars prequels. <laughs> <laughs> that one's from Maurice. <laughs> as, as, I, as I look at Matt stare I, off into the middle distance, well, I, I know I just, I just ended the podcast. No, no, because there, there is play the outro music, y'all. I, I have gotten into the argument with more than one person about. I've I've been an apologist for Revenge of the Sith since it came out. I never had. I think Revenge of the Sith has some honestly great moments in it. And having recently rewatched Phantom Menace, I think Phantom Menace has some charm. A lot I have more problems with Attack of the Clones. I think Attack of the Clones is the is far and away the weakest of the three, except for that wonderful moment with Yoda and the younglings. Just because it's so a Yoda moment. It's it's the one time in that trilogy where you get that impish little, you know, the same Yoda who's like, mine, 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 mine. No, you're not. It's like, all right, that's the Yoda who screwed around with Luke. The, the rest of the Yoda is so serious. But no, this is a lost the planet master everyone has. How embarrassing. It's like, yes, yes, this is this is Yoda. <laughs> but outside of it yes i wish he was a muppet <laughs> yeah for real that's it right there like in a nutshell you know like what you're talking about with yoda and then where that goes you know where, where that's sort of uh enca- where it's encapsulated by all that technology swirling around and if we can think it we can do it if we can imagine it we can present it and it's just boy uh, a little bit of restraint on those films and they'd be genius because, you know, Mike has argued for forever uh, about, you know, the storytelling quality of those films and the idea of what Lucas was attempting to do in a big budget blockbuster, you know, special effects film. Uh, the idea of presenting all that political information to us, you know, that argument and the, the look at authoritarianism and the, the Shakespearean tragedy of Anakin Skywalker. That's good shit. No one's going to argue that. But boy, I think the container it's in, it all comes down to Yoda. Yeah. The Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. (laughs) Revenge of the Sith has a line that now, 15 years later, with the way of the world, still gives me chills. So, this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause. Yeah, and you it, hear that today, and it's like, yes. <laughs> uh, you just you gave me the chills because that is exactly, man. That's the, that's the exact type of. I mean, Star Wars to me, and I don't. I'm sorry, we got us here. No, but that, go that for was it. The, that was the moment. I know everyone's got that story, but you know, ten year old me in Santa Rosa, California, walking out of that theater, uh, experiencing what I did. You know, that's the kind of stuff that, man, it, it goes well beyond just a couple hours of entertainment. You know, we've, how many storytellers have we seen inspired and, and you know, using Star Wars as a springboard into incredibly creative careers. One that we've, you know, many that we've all enjoyed, whether they're novelists or, or you know, screenwriters or 
concept designers or whatever. And that's, that's the kind of stuff where, boy, yeah, that, I wish we had more, to be frank. I really do. I think I just killed the vibe, didn't I? No, no. not at all. Not <laughs> at all. <laughs> This is a good cool I want, vibe. I want more Puppet Yoda. That's all I'm saying. That's we all, it. Well, Frank Oz makes everything better. Let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what are you reading right now? I am reading Carrie um, by Stephen King for the first time. Um, and yeah, yeah. Again, Mike Marisi uh, instigating me uh, to do things <laughs> I haven't done before, uh, like, like the prequels or read old Stephen King books. Um, but no, you know, I that film was one of those that uh, the adaptation of that novel fucking freaked me out when I was a kid. Right. It was the kind of thing where I was like, Oh my God, this is horrifying. Now it's the kind of thing where reading it through the lens of 2020 is very, very interesting. Very interesting. So I'd never read it and I'm glad I have. And hopefully Mike and I will have a long discussion about it at some point because that was the idea. Both of you should uh, come on and we can have that discussion, <laughs> we can have okay. discussion right here. All right. No problem. Yeah, yeah. well, if we start talking Stephen King, that might... might I was going to say, I can talk Stephen King for days. <laughs> okay. He can. He can. <laughs> <laughs> do a Stephen King with Mike and I. We'll do it. <laughs> um, now, now we've got I, a couple just, Halloween specials planned out. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you, I'm, seriously, I'd love to. Uh, I got to see him speak here at the University of Montana a couple years ago, my lovely daughter, uh, my adult daughter waited in line for six hours to get us in. And we got like within two rows of him and I got to watch him talk for an hour. And yeah, I'm glad I, you know, now in this world we're in, in, in the world where we all get to stay at home if we're lucky and yeah. if we have to be safe, I, I was like, I may never ever have that chance again for sure. So I'm really glad to have gotten to see him speak live and, um, it was, it was quite an experience. He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, just uh, reading Carrie and I just finished bent heavens uh, from Daniel Kraus, who is doing the autumnal with us at vault. And Daniel is a extraordinary horror writer in his own right. And I believe he's just released uh, the final story uh, from George Romero, which Daniel Kraus wrote. Um, and I can't, I can't, the living dead. I think it's called. Hmm. Yeah. So Daniel Krause, Ben Heavens, and Carrie, Stephen King. Great. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as, as we are, are winding down, uh, Tim, how can people uh, follow you online and your work and everything you're doing if you, in fact, wish to be followed? <laughs> <laughs> Do I want to be followed? Sure. Uh, sorry. They're over at the park right now, they're uh-huh. playing uh, live music. Uh, they do it every Monday and Wednesday night. And they're playing, they're actually playing Jurassic Park. So I'm, I'm kind of digging it. I got a little distracted. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not show tunes from the twenties. It's <laughs> Jurassic Park. It's really nice. One John um, William uh, going from star Wars to a John, another John Williams score. So. Yes. Any day. Yeah. Drew, Drew Struzan's book. Also, there's another one that I look mm. at all the time over all his poster books. Um, mm. So following. Yeah. Uh, Tim Daniel comics uh, at, on Twitter. Uh, and uh, Instagram as well, um, same thing. Um, and so folks can find me there. And uh, was that was that the question? Yes, Jurassic yes, Park, and, I, and I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
All right. Well, we'll 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 leave you to uh, enjoying the, the the sweet strains of John Williams. And thank you so much for uh, coming on doing the show, Tim. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Matt. I really had a great time. And uh, if you guys ever want to do Stephen King, just hit Mike and I. We'll be happy to join you. <laughs> Good to know. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics for just a dollar donation. Get your early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. And a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones and Match Club Podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Scott Madrinsky from Mojoswork.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Saren, and Lan M. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox, plus sneak peeks at what's ahead and an early look at our weekly editorial. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQ Comics for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. WMQA.